month. It's March 11, 2012. Our message today is called Elim and the Nations. Elim and the Nations. Does anybody recognize the word Elim? Okay, well, you're going to learn something today. Turn with me to Genesis 10. Uh, we're going to take a little bit to get to Elim. As I share complex subjects in the Word, uh, let me tell you, this is something that is falling out of preaching. Uh, preaching has become so ridiculously simplistic that what pastors typically do now is share a single scripture, uh, several funny stories, and uh, the whole thing needs to be wrapped up in 23 minutes. And the general thought is that Americans have, have no uh, attention span, that Americans will not tolerate teaching that is longer than that. I'm glad that you are not typical. And the reason that I'm glad that you're not typical is this would be to shortchange the kingdom. This would be to shortchange the gospel. The gospel is not something that is a nursery rhyme. It's not simply rule upon rule and precept upon precept that you teach children in a sing-song way. It is such a complex, uh, beautiful, wonderful mystery that you could spend your entire life studying all of the Word and never have soaked it all in. When Jews find something new in the Word, the rabbis would teach them to pray and say, Thank you, Lord God. For your word is a 70-sided gem, and I have seen one more beautiful side. This is the way that we approach the word. So in Genesis 10, let us, uh, let us pick up with verse 32. These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. There is a time period, the Noahic flood, some 2,400 uh, BC, and it's on the timeline on the wall, some 1600 years after man, the earth is so corrupt that God floods it. And then in Genesis 10, we have what people refer to as the table of the nations. Genesis 10 starts with Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah. They represent all of the human race after the flood. Because anybody who is here had to come from Ham, Shem, Japheth, and their wives, period. Kind of like everybody can be traced back to Adam and Eve. Well, if all of creation was wiped out and eight people in all, three sons, their daddy, and their wives, eight people in all survived, then everybody on the planet goes back to those sons. Yes? Is that right? Am I wrong, Keith? Okay, good. I, if I am, say so. I'm keeping an eye on it, Andrew. I need you to, to stay with me today because I already know what I'm going to preach. Yeah, see, I, I'm already really familiar with it. So who's this message for? There you go, Cody, it's for you. Praise God, got that big arm out there. So the three sons of Noah produced all of the nations on the earth. How many of you know that the Jewish people love the Word of God? Yeah, the first five books were something that were commonly memorized by the age 13 in uh, first century Jewish society. So how was Jesus the Word? Well, it was his character and it was his substance, but on a very natural level, when Luke says he grew in stature and wisdom, he had to memorize it, just like everyone else. Yeah? How many of you would like your 13-year-old to have memorized five books of the Bible? Maybe they would not act like the 13-year-olds that many of us know. Yeah? Well, because Jews loved the Word, because it was a part of culture, they did something. When you look at verse 2, what's it say? Somebody read that out loud. Just the very first few words of it. Verse 2 of chapter 10. Just, somebody call it out. The sons of Japheth. 
Now, we read this, we go, oh, it's a genealogy, right? The sons of Japheth. And then who else are you going to see? You're going to see the sons of Ham come next. And then the sons of Shem come after that. And there's all these names listed under it. Has anybody in here ever counted them? No, why would you, right? Jews went, wow, if everybody on the planet came from these three sons, then every nation can be tra traced back to their sons. That will tell us how many nations there are. And from Japheth, we have a total of 14 names that are under him. 14 nations sprung forth from Japheth. And from Ham, we have a total of 30 names that sprang forth, 30 nations that came forward from Ham. And after Ham came Shem. From Shem came 26 people. Where that comes from is counting their names, making sure that you don't catch anybody twice. So when you add 14, 30, and 26, wish Mr. Fred was here today, what you end up with is seven. This rose uh, the popular thought among all Jewish people that 70 represented the number of nations in the world. Now there one, may one day be 80 because nations split or nations grew. Today they say there are 216 nations in the world, but the number 70 in the Bible always represents the nations of the world. Turn with me then to Genesis 46. If we can watch an entire two-hour movie and be able to put together the beginning, the middle, and the end, surely we can string together a couple concepts in the Word that are buried in our hearts, right? So in Genesis 46, we see more listing, more names. What happened is when God began to apportion the nations upon the planet, the Jews say that there were 70. But out of all of the nations on the earth, did He pick one that was special? Yet did he set his affection upon one that was special? Was it because they're smarter than everybody? Was it because they're better looking than everybody? Was it because they're good with money? <laughs> no! Bunch of Gentiles. No, it's really not. It was because they were the smallest in all of the nations. The least affluent. The least influential. The least. So let me ask you, why did He pick you? Did He pick you because you had it all together? Did He pick you because you were uh, a person of noble character and uh, we're going to change the world in your own right? Now He picks people in which His power can be displayed to the greatest extent. He picks people that from the very lowest place, He can take them to the highest place. The story of the Bible is a story of rescue. Starting in Exodus 1 and 2, we see a God who sees the condition of His people in Exodus, and so He comes down. He comes down and rescues them to take them up to where He is. This is the message of the Bible. A God who reaches down, cares for people enough to bring them up. And how does God do things on the earth? We're drawn on the last few messages here. If God wants to split the Red Sea, He causes a man to stretch out a staff. If God wants to lead His children out of uh, bondage, He raises up a deliverer who will bring them out. When God wants to bring people from low places to high places, He uses you to do it. So are you all in Genesis 46? In Genesis 46, uh, we're going to have a, an incredibly obvious point here. Look at verse 8. These are the names of the sons of Israel. Now how many are there? Twelve. Twelve sons of Israel. Out of all of the people on the planet, God started with one family. 
God began with one family because there's this principle in the Bible. And it's something that we're going to talk to you more and more and more about. One life changes one family. One family can change one nation. When this happens, the world begins to get united under one Lord. We have an emphasis in this church, changing one life at a time. Because it all starts with what you do. And what you do will most directly affect your family. And what your family does will begin to affect the nations that we live in and go to. And that affects the world. This family was chosen by God. There are 12 boys. We are in their order listed here, not in birth. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Gad, Asher, Joseph, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali. Look at verse 26. All those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were in direct descendants, not counting his son's wives, numbered 66 persons. That's an odd number, isn't it? But we keep counting in the Bible. With the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, what is 66 plus 2? Of course, you have to include Joseph who was already in Egypt. What are we at then? Then you have to include Jacob, who is obviously not one of Jacob's sons. And what are we at? 70. So we have a principle in the Bible where although God started with a very special 12, a very special family, if you will, a select grouping, not because they were great, but because they were not great, He would display His wonder in them, and they would grow to represent something much larger. 70 in the Bible is always the nations of the world. God always intended to touch you, your family, and the world through what He's doing in you. The gospel has never been about just you. Never. In America, we preach a selfish gospel. We preach one that wants us blessed for the sake of us being blessed. But this is not why God picked the family that He did. In Genesis 12, 1 through 4, He says, I will bless you to be a blessing to the nations. Psalm 67 teaches the same thing. Be gracious and compassionate to us that your ways may be known in the earth. The reason that God chose you was so that you could affect your families and the nations of the world. In this case, he starts with 12, but 70 go into Egypt. What's scrolling on the TV screen so that you're not all just mesmerized by it are the nations of the world. There's 216 of them, and if they weren't scrolling here, how many of you are confident you could name more than 35? Now, isn't that amazing? Could you name half of them? Could anybody here name a hundred of the nations of the world if we took that down? This is because we live in America and we put ourselves in the center of the map. Our gospel is selfish and our culture is selfish. I'm not beating up on us because we're Americans. I love America. I really, really do. I'm glad that my passport allows me entry into most nations in the world. I'm really thrilled to death about that. But I want to tell you that God is not focused solely upon any one nation. He always starts with a nation and uses that nation to bless the world. And which nation did He start with? Israel. The book you're holding in your lap came from Israel to you as a gift. As a gift to teach you about their God so that you could be grafted into their plan of redemption. And it came with it a price tag. The price tag was your life. Your life now belongs to their God, their Messiah. And the last thing that he said before ascending into the heavens 
was go into the nations. But this is not the emphasis of the church. Why is that? I think it's because we misunderstood from the beginning of the Bible what God's intentions are. Seventy people went into Egypt because God wanted to show something. I will start with twelve, but I will touch the world. Does that have a little first century ring to it? The reason that you number your checks the way that you do, you put a date on them, is twelve Jewish boys went into the whole world with the message of the gospel. And now we number our years based on the birth of a Jewish Messiah. Twelve went into the nations and changed the world. How many are in this room? We could say, well, who are we to do it? I'd say, who are we not to do it? The living God has called us. The question is, will we answer His call? Turn with me to Genesis 49. Isn't it nice when you all have to turn a couple of pages? In our church services, we often hit hundreds of scriptures. But uh, this morning, I put most of them in order for you. Say thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Pastor. All right, you are welcome. In Genesis 49, in verse 3, we have Reuben. In verse 5, we have Simeon and Levi. In verse 8, we have Judah. What am I naming? I'm naming the 12 again, right? Those 12 special ones. Out of all of those, who does your heart just kind of go to? Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah's the fourthborn. Is fourthborn particularly special in the Bible? No, it's, it's not at all. And Judah ends up, we say, chosen for all kind of crazy reasons. You know? I mean, when we lived in Louisiana, we loved Mississippi back in the 80s and 90s. You know why? They were the only state in the nation that made us look good. Right? Now, they had some decent governmental changes and now I'm not sure that's true anymore. The reason that Judah looked so good was his three older brothers looked so bad. Reuben did ugly things with his father's wife. Simeon and Levi hamstrung oxen in their anger. They killed men in their wrath. And there's a promise that is given. What started with 12, 12 family members something was going to happen with. Genesis 49, starting in verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. And the obedience of the nations will be his. What God intended to start with a single family, actually it starts with a man, Abraham, who's a friend of God and a family that was built for the man, these 12 sons, would eventually touch the entire world. And what would belong to this lion of the tribe of Judah? The obedience of the nation. So I want to ask you, how can they be obedient when they don't know who he is? I was standing in a tribe. Y'all all have pictures of Indra. I was standing in a tribal region of India where for three hundred years. There's not been a single convert in that village. When you talk about Jesus, they say, who? None of them were opposed to the gospel. They didn't know there was a gospel. How long can we stand for something like that? How long can we say that we're being obedient and he does not yet have the obedience of the nations? I'm proposing a priority shift 
say, everybody always wants to know, well, what do I do? We'll get to some things that you can do. Let me tell you some things that my family is doing. Is that fair enough? I wouldn't ask you to do anything. All I'm going to do is tell you some things my family is doing. I'm going to give you a sickening number. You want to know what the number is? $1,200. $1,200 is the lowest possible estimate that my family spent on cable television last year. That's it. Now, let me ask you. On the cable television where I spent $1,200 last year, how much is godly education? Is anybody going to jump up with an overwhelming, oh man, cable fell from the heavens? You know, how to get that Brazilian booty lift on a Saturday morning? From the heavens. How to love. Lord, I'd say something else, but that seems to be all there is on TV these days. It's how to be healthier, wealthier, and sexier, right? This is America's fascination. We spend more on cosmetics than many countries' gross domestic product. Yeah? We spend more on ice cream and dog food than most countries have to feed the populace of their nation. I can't tell you how sickening it is to come back from somewhere where there are starving children and see a dog food commercial where they're cutting up filet mignon. Because your dog deserves the best, JJ. He does. I tell you, I love my little dachshund, but he does not deserve the best. He certainly does not deserve what a child somewhere is not able to get. Can you say amen to that? Or are we so callous that we were twisted up on this one too? So one thing that we decided to do is in addition to tithing, in addition to the offerings that are already there. We're looking for areas where we can do without in our personal life something that really doesn't benefit us spiritually anyway. For missions. Does that sound like something that is incredibly radical or very, very elementary basic? Doesn't that sound as basic as could possibly be? i got to tell you, the decision didn't come easily. You know why it didn't come easily? Because we're pretty attached to our stuff. We just really are. Some of the questions that came up in my household, but is what about this program? Okay, well, let's bring it down to a real spiritual level here. Would you trade top gear for the kingdom? Would you rather see, by the way, in India, a rural pastor, for $50, you support his family for a month? $50. So would you rather be able to watch American Idol or feed a pastor? Isn't that something? Now, when we start to do this, all of a sudden, other things come up in our mind. Yeah, but how much of the money actually makes it there? We find any excuse that we can to try to alleviate ourselves from having to do something. But why did God bless you? Yeah. God has always had His eye on a, a person that would affect a family, that would affect the nations of the world. In the Bible, this is represented through the family of Israel, 12 and the nations of the world, 70. And you see this pattern over and over and over. Out of these 12 sons would come one who the obedience of the nations would belong to. Turn with me to Exodus 15. How did Brandon get to Exodus 15? Did you lie to me in church, Brandon? Are you still turning to Exodus 15? You're just good like that, huh? There you go, Daniel. Daniel's there. <laughs> Are you going mad? No. Why are you so quiet? Sleepy. You're sleepy? 
You get up at like three in the morning anyway. Not on Sunday. All right. Okay, so in Exodus 15, check this out. Uh, pick up with me in verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. Are you sure? For three days, they traveled in the desert without finding water. Now, what's valuable to you, friends? <laughs> do you want $1,000 in your hand right now or do you want water? Well, it depends on where you are. If you're in the middle of the Mojave and you haven't had water for three days, you wouldn't, you, you'd give a million dollars for the glass of water if you had it because your life depended upon it. What does a man's life consist of? Is it the abundance of his possessions? What does a man's life consist of? It better be the words of God that you have treasured in your heart. Teachers of the law who instruct people are like Men who go into the storehouse and bring out both treasures old and new, the gospel says. What are you storing in your life? We all have heard these messages enough to properly defend our hearts against these messages. When you see the children on TV in Africa, right, and it's always a little bloated belly and a big white eyes, and, and it's like somebody cued the, the gnats and flies, right? What do you do with your remote? You just hit the next channel. You've seen it before. And you excuse your heart with things like, yeah, but if you give if you give a dollar, only two of it gets to the children. It's better than none getting there. Lately, everybody has uh, seen an internet sensation. Some 67 million people have watched the uh, Coney 212 film. No? I know, we're all kind of technologically behind. They're criticizing this, uh, this ministry. By the way, it is a ministry. They're criticizing it. You know why they're criticizing it? Out of every $100 given, only 38 is reaching the children. How many were reaching the children before the ministry started? Yeah. Is that a reason why? How much money did we spend eating out last year if we had to total it up? Because we're just not capable of making a sandwich? I don't want you to feel bad about your life. That's not the point. I want you to have a life that's worth living. I want you to have a legacy that is worth leading. I want you to stand up and be proud that you made a difference. One of the big problems is we don't believe we can actually make a difference. So listen to this. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. Marah means bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord. Isn't it funny how we wait to cry out to the Lord till we have a problem? Andrew, you're not going to wait to have a problem to cry out to the Lord, are you? See, one of the things I was preaching about Wednesday night is the Lord loves you enough to put you in a situation where you will see worth in His Word. And you know when you value water the most? When you don't have it. The Lord will let you get into a very, very spiritually dry place so that you'll cry out to Him. And He will let you hunger, Deuteronomy 8 says, so that He can feed you and teach you that man doesn't live on bread alone. He lives on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He is trying to teach us something. If He lets there be a need in your life, we might need to examine what He is trying to teach us through that need. So many times we don't know what would cure us. So many times we don't know what we really need. Moses cries out to the Lord. 
And when he cries out to the Lord, something happens. Praise God, we serve a God who hears. The Lord showed him a piece of wood. Now this is kind of crazy. Showed him. This is one of those English words that just does not do the Hebrew text justice. In Hebrew, this is yara. Yara doesn't just mean show. It can also mean an archer who shoots, shoots an arrow. But most accurately, it means instructed him, taught him. The Lord taught him about a piece of wood. What's the next verse say? What's he do with the wood? He cast the wood into waters. In the Bible, large bodies of waters represent the seas of humanity. The water had been bitter. The seas of humanity, friends, are bitter. Drive down 59. How many people are smiling and happy about life? If you happen to pull out in front of somebody in traffic, they're not telling you you're number one. They're trying to say something else, aren't they? People are not happy. The sea of humanity is bitter. But the Lord instructed Moses about a piece of wood, a cross. It would change everything. When it entered humanity, it would change not some of it, all of it. It would take what was bitter and make it sweet. Now, I'm not a universalist. Me and Rob have parted ways over that. But I want to tell you this. What God has finished with upon the earth will be every tribe, every tongue, and every nation's representatives as the sons of God on this planet. This is what the Bible very clearly teaches. And he must have a representative of all. So what is left of the waters of Mara will only be that which he turns sweet. The rest will be purged from the creation. Are you hearing me? The Lord loved this world enough to send his son into it to change it. Everybody can quote John 3.16. They forget about John 3.17. They forget that the verdict has already been issued. We are already guilty. And Jesus entered into our situation and our guilt for a reason. He wanted to pull us out of it and make us a part of his team, pulling everyone else out of it. I've quoted many times to you. 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Whose team are you on? Are you destroying the devil's work? Or are you pretty well just making sure you have the most comfortable life possible? There is a church that you can go to that will assure you your very best life now. They will promise you every day is Friday. And you know what? There's a giant crowd there. It's complete with playgrounds and bookstores and everything that your heart could desire. Is that what Christianity is about to you? I'm going to criticize somebody else's work. I'm talking to you. Is that what it's about to you? Is it about everything your hearts desire? Or is it about what you can do for Him? See, I've become persuaded over the last 19 years that Christianity is not about what God can do for me. He's already done more than I could have ever asked for. My life so exceeds my own expectations for it at this point. That every day is an absolute blessing. Now my sole focus is what I can do for someone else. You know, John F. Kennedy was a president, not a preacher. But he definitely stole the theme from the Bible. We are asking the wrong questions, friends. 
We're leading people to the altars. We're leading them to decisions for Jesus that are little more than greed. Don't you want to go to heaven when you die? Don't you want a better life? Don't you, don't you want to go to Disney World? I mean, it's ridiculous. This is not the question. The question is, if He cleans you, if He credits you with His righteousness, will your life belong to Him? No matter what it is. That's the gospel. Let me ask you something. When they boiled John in oil, was he having his best life now? When they saw Isaiah in two, was he having his best life now? When they threw Daniel in a lion's den, was he having his best life now? It's a big resounding no, and at the same time, yes, because they were all in jeopardy for the king's sake. They knew what it was to have a fellowship with him that was so close, people treated them like they treated Jesus. You know, 2 Timothy says, anyone who wants to live a godly life, Matthew, anyone will be persecuted. How are we doing with that, that test? I was in a meeting in Sri Lanka where we actually had to keep our voices down because people will come and cane you across the face for talking about Jesus. So, well, I'm blessed. I live in this country. Yes, what are you doing with your blessing? What are you doing? Wouldn't it be nice if you could answer that question with a sincere, full heart, excited about not what you will do, but what you had already done? Anybody here built anything that's hard to build? Dustin fixes things. Dustin, when you have a car and you just can't figure it out, I don't know, like Brandon and Stephanie's car, <laughs> and you finally get some resolution, and you fixed it, you see that thing running down the road. Okay, it was a bad example, Brandon and Stephanie, I'm sorry. <laughs> Doesn't it feel good? There is glory in what you suffer for him. You build worth in something that you had to do for him that was hard. Yeah? This is why I'm against making missions trips vacations. It's why I'm against spending more time shopping than you do evangelizing. That's not a missions trip. That's a ridiculous facade. But I did want to talk to you about something else here in the Word. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them. And there He tested them. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His eyes, if you pay attention to His commands and keep all His decrees. Do you hear all those ifs? That's what's known as a conditional clause. I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and camped there near the water. They had no water. What was in Elim? Twelve springs. It's kind of like, were they in the promised land? They were not in the promised land. Were they in Egypt? They were not in Egypt. They were somewhere between the bondage of their slavery and the freedom of their future. They were still in process just like you. But the Lord wanted to teach them a message. He wanted to teach them a message about the cross that would change everything. He wanted to teach them a message that says, you were 12 and I care about the 70. You can be 12 springs that will produce fruit in every nation of the world. Elim would be famous in Israeli history. It would be famous because it was the place of refreshment. Where is your refreshment, friends? It's when you let God make you become a spring that feeds the nations. 
You want to feel good about your life? It will not happen when you buy a new dress. That will feel good for 10 minutes. Spence, got to quit buying new dresses. <laughs> it will not come when you get the new car. How many of you have had new cars that you're disappointed in a year after you bought it? Quit buying Dodges, Dustin. <laughs> we have fallen into the idea that a material thing will make us happy. We've even taken a day that is not Jesus' birthday, made it Jesus' birthday as an excuse to indulge our greed. And we do it every year. And we brag about how much... We don't say crap in church, do we? Junk. How much junk we buy our children. And we are not ashamed of it. We're proud of it. You want to feel good? Go feed somebody that wouldn't have eaten if you weren't obedient. You want to feel good about something? Know that at the end of the day, you did something that was hard to do for no other reason than you loved the Lord. So Eric, we just don't have an opportunity. What am I preaching for 108 times a year in this building? I preached 42 times while I was in India. I tell them the same thing I tell you. Exactly. God didn't save you for the sake of you. He saved you for the sake of blessing the whole world. Start with your nation and move out with it. There are all these Muslim nations between you and Jerusalem. I'm counting on you. If I'm honest, you know what else I told them they listen? I'm counting on you because I'm scared that my brothers and sisters in America are too cowardice to go into the Muslim countries of the world. But I know you Indians and you Chinese Christians will do it because you're not scared to be persecuted. That's what I told them. Everybody asked me what I preached there. I guess I just kind of slipped and told the truth. You know what? They rallied behind it. They're excited at the thought that God would privilege them with the opportunity to do something that even great America and all of its blessings shies away from doing. They don't understand that all the great blessings of America have become the great trappings of America. They don't understand that it is the poor who are really rich. They still watch the little bit of TV that they can get and envy Americans to the point that 400 pastors will gather to, to come hear this pastor speak in my own town. I can't get four pastors together to hear me speak, JJ. Except the ones we raise up. When we raise them up, I can say, be here at this time, and you're here at this time. But in that town they will. You know why? Because America must be great. It's so blessed. And I want to tell you, the poorest nations on the planet are where the greatest movements of God are happening. Because the gospel has a preferential option for the poor, the orphans, and the widows. This is who God cares about. Read the book of James and tell me I'm lying. Tell me I'm wrong. So Eliam in the nations has to do with the fact that he takes one life, he affects one family, and that will affect the nations of the world. One life at a time, one family at a time, one nation at a time, and we have one Lord. This is the goal of this ministry. It's why it's called Life-Changing Ministries. It started with a prayer in 1993 by an absolutely sinful pastor who didn't know he was a pastor yet. And I said, Lord, change me. Has that had an effect on Gabriel's life? Yes, because when one man sincerely follows the Lord with all of his heart, not this religious garbage that is based on church attendance and feel good, uh, throw some change in the plate and everybody will be happy. We're not happy. If you don't give your whole life, then well, I'm going to push you further. One life that is sincerely changed by the power of God affects others. Is the Stevens family been a blessing to any family in here? Yes. Yes. One family on fire begins to affect other families. You know what nations are made of? Families. 
That's what they're made of. One thing that we're seeing in our social media right now, one thing that we're seeing is that a single person has the ability to touch the world. Six days ago, a video came out called Coney 2012. If you haven't seen it, watch it. It's 27 minutes on YouTube. I'm not all about the Coney Project. That's not me. But I am amazed at what this man did. I knew he was a Christian before I researched him because he was doing the works of Christ. Nine years ago, he went to Uganda. Something happened to him. A problem that was enormous, bigger than anybody could count. 30,000 children being forced into child soldier positions or sexual slavery. 30,000. Who can relate to 30,000? Do you feel like you can rescue 30,000, Nolan? Yeah, I don't either. But something happened to him. He met one. And he decided to do something about that one child. His name was Jacob. One life. One family. One nation at a time. Now, after nine years, the man has gotten the attention of the U.S. government. But more importantly, he got the attention of the world population through a video. This was six days ago. On day four, I saw the video. It had 30 million hits. On day five, it had 66 million hits. During the 30 minutes that Matthew and Cassidy and I watched it for the second time, 300,000 additional people watched it. When I played it later for Cody and whoever else was at my house at the time, we were over 67 million. You know why? He took a problem that is as big as the world and he made it personal to people. He related his son and Jacob to the problem. And everybody understands that. And he showed them something that they could do. Light bulbs going off in me. I preach all of the time. I preach about the glory of God, the responsibility of Christians, the empowerment of the Holy Ghost, the sincere hope of the resurrection. I preach about these things all of the time, but maybe we don't know what to do. So one of the things that you're going to leave with today is what you can do. Yeah? And relax. I don't, I'm not asking for a change. Yeah? That's so easy, isn't it? It's so easy. Okay, Pastor. Okay, look, just let up on me. Where can I write the check, huh? Yeah. But Jesus didn't say the Great Commission would be based on writing checks, did he? Checks are a part of it. But that is not the Great Commission. Jesus did not say Go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey me. Or you could write a check and pay somebody to do it on your behalf if you're a member of the top 10% in the world. If you remember, if you were the most educated, the most influential, the most comfortable, if you have been blessed more than anybody else on the planet, you, my friend, are exempt. Let's let the poor people go reach the poor people. He didn't say that. By the way, can we expect the poor of the world to get on planes and come here to hear the gospel? Then what on earth are we building millions and millions and millions of dollars in our building as if the building would attract uh, the lost to bring the Great Commission? <coughs> what if we spent those same millions going? You see that the we have a uh, centripetal nature rather than a centrifugal nature. We have an inward focus rather than an outward focus. How many of you have heard me say this before? Okay, now tell the truth, because I will come, I'll go row by row, person by person. How many of you have heard me say this before? Then what is it going to take? 
What's it going to take? How many times can we hear a thing before we have to do it? You ever had a place in your life where your spiritual walk just seemed unfulfilling? The River Jordan is full of love. It is. It descends off of Mount Hermon. It's a beautiful sight. I hope all of you get to see it in your life. It has three tributaries. And the three tributaries, the dam, the hot pan, and the panias, they all come together and they form the Jordan. And I expected the Jordan to be like the Mississippi River. It's not. It's elegant. It's a beautiful stream. It's more like the Indian River, Charlie. Uh, yeah, those of you that don't know what that is, these are muddy backwaters in Louisiana. And there's the biggest catfish you ever saw in the uh, Jordan. Because Jews won't eat something that doesn't have fins and scales. Catfish don't have scales. Yeah. And it is full of life. And it goes from northern Israel in the Hermon all the way down to southern Israel. It actually at one point enlarges so that it's 18 miles across, 7 miles uh, in the other direction. And we call that the Sea of Galilee. That's what Jesus walked on. But it started as the Jordan River, full of life. There's fish in the Jordan River. There's fish in the Sea of Galilee. In fact, all tourists go eat something called Simon Peter's fish, right? Because we had to name a fish after Simon Peter. And charge about $40 for that fish to eat it on a plate. Because that's what Peter would do. Peter would rip you off by naming a fish after himself. And I'm just going to tell you, if you're from South Louisiana or the southern part of the U.S., if you like any spice in your food, this is not the fish to order if you're on the Sea of Galilee. So you leave the Sea of Galilee, you head south in the Jordan, man, you're going all through Israel, you're picking up minerals along the way, you're picking up beautiful, life-giving substance, and then you enter into the lowest place on the planet Earth. It's called the Salt Sea. All of that life that accumulated all comes into one place, and the Salt Sea is also known as the Dead Sea. And it's known as the Dead Sea because nothing can live in it. All of that life that it gathered along the way becomes stagnant and produces only death because it has no outlet. If your spiritual life is stagnant, I'm going to ask you a big resounding question. It's not, did you sin? Did you watch something you shouldn't watch? Did you eat something you shouldn't eat? All the ways we define, you know the best way you can define sin? It's James 4, 17. The good that you know you ought to do and do not do. I'm going to ask you, what have you been doing for him? Our Gospels become so polluted with man ideas. We say, oh, that's works, it's adding to the cross. I say, you are an idiot, sir. An idiot. Any theologian that has made his entire point that the church does nothing is stupid. But that's what's popular. We even name that denomination with the word southern in front of it. Just to give us a special distinction. Of course, southern didn't get tapped on until there was some racism involved after the Civil War. I grew up in the denomination. We don't do anything because that's adding to the cross. That would be working for salvation. I don't work to get saved, friends. He picked me because I was pitiful. I work because he saved me. You understand the difference? If you have been saved, if you have been set free, how can you not want to do it for someone else? If you were the baby that almost got aborted, and your life is important to you, you think it's a good life. How could you not care about the next one that's going to be born? If you survived a murder, how could you not care about a genocide that is going on? We look back on history and we say, oh, if I'd been there, I'd have done something. But what are you doing with your history now? 
Isn't that a fair question? I think that 12 springs were meant to touch 70 nations. The, the 70 nations don't support the 12 springs. You hear that? We don't support the root. The root supports us. This began in a family in Israel. We are the fruit of Israel's labor. We are. We often don't acknowledge that. We owe them a great debt. And now, because something was done for us, we have a debt to the rest of mankind. It's the only debt that Romans 14 says to let remain outstanding. It's the debt of love. Can you stand just a little more preaching? Yeah. yeah. I think my first Sunday back, I preached an hour and 47 minutes. But I'm not jet lagged anymore. I think I can do better. Uh, <laughs> Turn with me to Numbers 11. Honestly, when I think you've got it, we'll stop. I said Numbers 11, right? In Numbers 11, we have an interesting thing happening. Lots of complaining. Good thing that never happens in church. Numbers 11.4. Somebody read that loud, because this is taped. And I want to tell you, people in India, people in Holland, people in Germany, people all over South America, people that I haven't met, it's kind of odd. Download and listen to these messages. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's greatly valued outside the room and sometimes undervalued inside the room. <laughs> But that, you're here today, so I'm proud of you. Somebody read it 11 4. You got it, Gabe. The rabble with them began to crave other food. What began as a nation, rather, began as a family 12 people, the 12 springs that would affect the whole world. They'd become 70 palm trees, man. It would be salvation that would engulf the earth began to accumulate something. Somebody got tacked on to Israel that was not really Israel. Was it because they were not descendant from Jacob? No, they were descendant from Jacob. But they did not act like their namesake. You know, this is a lot like Christianity. We, we fall into this category where we say, you can't judge me, Gabriel. You can't judge me. Nobody knows my heart. Of course, you know a tree by its fruit. We judge a palm tree, we drug, judge an apple tree, all those things. So then we do something else. Joe, is he a Christian? He says he's a Christian. Sometimes attached to Christianity, wearing the name Christianity, is a bunch of rabble. And you know what the rabble wants? The rabble wants something other than daily bread. The rabble wants something other than what God is giving them. That's not enough for them. They want other food. They actually fantasize about what it was like back in the world as if they want to be back in the world. You know, it used to be that the prodigal had to leave the father's house to go spend his inheritance. But we live in a church age where we stay in the father's house, spend our inheritance on riotous living while in the father's house. We live exactly like our neighbors do. Exactly. Our kids wear the clothes that they wear. We watch the programs that they watch. We vote the way that they vote. And our priorities are the same as theirs with two exceptions. Some of you attend church regularly, and some of you give in the offering. Some. Other than that, what separates us from our neighbors? What separates you from a Mormon? 
what separates us from a Jehovah's Witness? What separates us from other people that go to a religious service? The Buddhists back here beat their drums for 10 hours every Saturday. 10. You can hear it over here from that temple. We didn't have that kind of aggression when I was in Sri Lanka, and the nation is more than 80% Buddhist. They're emboldened here. You know why? Because nobody stands up. If our worship service is an hour long, people start coming later and later and later to it. We just don't have the tolerance for it. The Buddhists will worship for 10 hours back then. Who wants it the worst? I think what should separate us are the actions of Jesus. We ask ourselves on our bracelets, what would Jesus do? We have a whole book that's what he did. The question is not what would Jesus do, it's what are you doing for Jesus? Next time you're in your workplace and you hear that somebody is broken, you can just act like you didn't hear it and keep walking or you could sit there and say, what am I doing for Jesus? So, but if I say something, I'm not supposed to talk about that stuff at work. Well, who do you work for? Who do you work for? Well, you don't understand, Eric. I work for the school system, and in the school system, you do? You work for the school system? Because that job can come and go, my friend, but your relationship with Jesus is your source. And by the way, you are supposed to be a source to the nations. Twelve springs fed 70 palm trees. Are you hearing them? Twelve fed 70. The rabble with them began to complain. Look at verse 16. The Lord said to Moshe, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials from among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there. Like vanilla ice, you've got a problem. He'll solve it, right? I will take of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. What would be the solution for the problem of the nations? The same spirit that was in the one man would go out to the nations. That's beginning to sound a little bit like Pentecost. The problem was the people didn't know what they would need. They didn't know what they should be eating. They didn't know what it was to be fed from the mouth of God. So God started with one man and took from him and put it on the 70 that represent the nation. Now, even the rabble had an example to follow. Even the rabble had leaders to follow. You know, it's an interesting thing. They say, well, this is, uh, this is a leader from every tribe, you know. And so you start doing math, and you say, well, if six came from every tribe, that would be 72. Of course, there's not 72 here. What is there? 70. God is always very careful to make sure that the number is equal to the number of nations in the world because he wants your focus to be upon the nations. What started with one and became 12 suddenly and become the world. They begin to prophesy in the 24th verse. Israel experienced problems. They had rabble mixed with their sons. But one life, Moses, fed the nations 70 men who then could go change the world as they knew it. This ministry was founded upon Acts 16. Does anybody know what are the principal figures in Acts 16? Paul goes with Silas. You guys just read this in your daily readings last week. He goes with Silas and Timothy. And while they're in Acts 16, while that chapter's happening, Paul sees a vision. You remember what it was of? It was of a man of Macedonia. 
one man. You know what he said? Build a big enough church and I will come from Macedonia to you. Have a successful children's ministry and I will come from Macedonia to you. Put a Starbucks in your lobby and I will be there. It's not what he said. The vision was of a man in Macedonia. Brendan, he said, come over here. Come over here and help us. Paul finds that man. You know where he was? You know where he was, Steve? He was in jail. He was the warden, so to speak. You know how Paul and Silas found him? They were in jail. Chained to their calling. They didn't have to be there. In fact, they were Roman citizens, Matthew. They could say, let me out of here. And you'd have to let them out. But they shut up. They were willing to be chained, willing to be beaten, willing to be stripped. Because they had the sense that something might be about to happen. And one life, just one, would be worth it. The first man saved in Macedonia was the jailer there. And they said the most unusual thing to him, you and your whole household will be saved. Because the Bible acknowledges the fact that one sincere conversion will affect the family. And one sincere family can affect the nations of the world. Most of the churches in the book of Revelation are right in or around the Macedonia area. It's all of northern Greece. At some points it included Greece. I mean, it was the center of the world that it began with one man. And how did he get the message? Someone went to him. Was he poor? Probably not. Was he hungry? Probably not. Of course, he was hungry for something he didn't know he needed, and he was poor in ways he didn't know he was poor. He had the sentence of death in his heart. He was about to kill himself when Paul spoke out and said, Don't hurt yourself. We're all still here. In other words, we could leave you, but we're not. You know why they could leave Cass? Do you remember? There had been an earthquake and the prison doors came open, but the prisoners didn't leave. Friends, we don't endure hardship because we have to. We choose to. We choose to because their lives are worth it and the king is worth it. You know, it's, it's just one of those things. If you hear 10,000 people are drowning, you think it's a tragedy. You hear one person's drowning, you want to help the one. Because it feels like it's doable. What if all of us pick one? You may not be able to do anything about the world's problems, but you can do something about the problem that faces you every day. It's a Spanish proverb. It's always been one of my favorites. You may only have one chance to be a hero, but you have many chances every day not to be a coward. <laughs> Turn with me to Judges. You all almost got this message? Yeah. It's raining. Where are you going to go? Might as well stay and talk about Jesus. You all know I've preached many times about Adonai, Bezek. Adonai is a name for God. It's spelled differently in your English Bible and it's spelled differently to give you some distinction. They want you to know we're not talking about the God of the Hebrews. Adonai Bezek is a false God. The God of lightning. you remember what he did? Verse 7, Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off and picked up scraps under my table. Why seventy? This false God, Bezek means lightning. This false God of lightning... Felt like he had the world under his control. He felt like, by the way, Leviticus 14 and Leviticus 9 both say that 
your right earlobe as a priest, your right big great, your right thumb, and your great toe on your right foot would all be anointed with the blood of the Lamb. This guy liked to cut those off. He liked to cut off what anointed you, what enabled you. Anointing is God's divine enablement. But for what? Oh, we're anointed to sing. Yeah. We're anointed to preach. We're anointed to work in children's church. We're anointed for everything except to carry the gospel somewhere other than right here. So, well, I am. I am Eric. Okay. How many of us have sincerely witnessed from the depths of our hearts to someone this week, this month? Look at this. Look around you. What's that say? Well, God's just not given us the opportunity. Do we think that's it? We're sure that it's just God who's involved. This guy liked to cut off the thumbs and big toes of kings and have them grovel under his table. How humiliating. He symbolizes Satan. He symbolizes Satan. And he had the nations of the world in his grasp, groveling under his table. And who did God send to their rescue? Judah and Simeon, members of that special family who God had touched. Because when you touch one man, when you touch a family, and when you touch a family, you can touch the world. You think it made a difference in those 70 kings' lives? Well, I think so. The answer for the world's problems is what God has already given you. That's the answer for the world's problems. In Daniel 9, you don't have to turn there because you already know it. The second verse says that the captivity, captivity of Israel would be how many years? Seventy. Israel seventy would go into years. captivity in Babylon. Do you think seventy was at random? Or do you think that when the people of God failed to trust God and show it in their actions, He gave them one year for every nation in the world that they were letting down by not being the people He called them to be? By the way, later in the same chapter of Daniel, how many weeks were decreed before salvation would be brought to the whole world? Seventy-sevens. Do you see a pattern here? Our God cares about all the nations of the world, and He is not happy with His people when they don't care about what He cares about. But He will empower His people when they do care about what He cares about. Deuteronomy 32 is worth reading. Somebody read Deuteronomy 32.8. We're going to near the end of this message. Is that okay, Jesus? When God divided all of the nations, when mankind, His inheritance was spread out over the earth, how did He do it? According to the number of the sons of Israel. If you have a footnote there, it says according to the number of the sons of God. I want you to hear this, saints. When He determined how many nations there would be, when He set boundaries for them, when He determined that some child in Liberia would live in Liberia, have you ever thought about we all come into the world exactly the same way? I came into the world because I got a mama, just like you came into the world because you got a mama. My mama happened to live in Houston. So I was born in Houston. But what if she had lived in Liberia? 
What makes one life more valuable than another? Deuteronomy 32 teaches us something. When God apportioned these nations, He did it based on the number of His sons. You know why? Every son has a responsibility. Your son is the one that you can count on when you can count on no one else. I can have a work day. I'd say, hey, would all of you come to church? I don't know how many of you will show up, but the ones that are called my sons, literally, Cody, Brandon, Judah, Gabriel, they'll be there. You know why? I don't have a choice. They're my sons. If we're God's sons, do we really have a choice? Do we? Is obedience optional? Can we say we'll go and then not go? I would rather you say you're not going to go and go anyway. Didn't we have a parable like that in the Newer Testament? When God picked where and how people would be born and He set limitations in their life, He didn't set any bigger limitation than He said, sons of God. There's a ratio, friends. I don't know how many you're responsible for. What did that parable say? Some would have a crop of 30. Some would have 60. And some would have... A hundredfold. I don't know what you're responsible for, but I know you're responsible for some number. I know that. And I know that nothing happens when we do nothing. Somewhere we have to be jarred. Not guilted. Jarred in our righteous soul. Y'all remember the 1040 window, that project that floated through the church, right? It said that on the globe, and I meant to bring you a globe today, uh, if we look at latitude and longitude, there's a window, and it's somewhere around 10 degrees and 40 degrees, and this is the unreached people of the world. And then, you know what people started to say? We have to go to that area. And you know why we have to go to the area, Cassidy? Because Jesus won't come back until every tribe tongue. Do you mean even your missions efforts are selfish? Mm-hmm. How pathetic. We don't go because we care. We don't go because we want to feed them. We don't go because they desperately need Jesus. We go so that Jesus will come back and rescue us. Could there be anything more pathetic than that? That was not the intention of the program. That's simply the way that it got twisted as it entered into this materialistic environment. That is not the heart of the people. I've read their heart. Their heart is the same as ours. We don't need to go so that God's plan can progress like you're going to help Him. You need to go because He owns your life. You need to go because the obedient are blessed. You need to go because He desires your obedience more than sacrifice. You need to go. You need to participate. You need to pray for, finance, and travel to. Because you can. My friend Mario Salinas, we're going to see him Thursday. Mario lives in a hut. Y'all seen it? What is it, 12 by 15? How many kids he got? Five? Five. He's more blessed than people that are around him. We drop off $1,000 worth of flour, beans, rice, sugar. You know what Mario does? Begins distributing it to everyone. He understands that the only reason he's blessed is to be a blessing. Why is it that Mario understands that? Mario didn't get to go to Bible school. Mario first read the Bible in prison. He was in prison for distributing narcotics. He was arrested in Idaho. Isn't that funny? (laughs) Idaho. That's how we learn English. It's 
where he first read the Bible. He had a cellmate. They had to decide whether they were going to fight or pray. Praise God. They prayed. But when he was a drug dealer, he distributed something. He went into foreign nations to distribute it. He risked himself against the law to distribute it. He risked everything that he had to distribute it. It cost him about 12 years in prison. Now he's found something better. <coughs> Maybe it's just for a special few. Maybe this kind of thing is just for Mario. Because if that's true, then we could go back to our couches and our TV sets. We could feel great about ourselves, call ourselves champions, right? Because we're all champions. Even if we've never done anything, we're champions. So, well, friend, what if I'm in certain sin? Well, that's not God's best for you. And what if, I, what if I'm considering suicide? Well, that's not God's best for your health. I mean, this is stupid. The king of the universe is calling. He's calling. So, well, how's he calling? Well, for one, I spent most of my life in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Yeah. That's the Nazareth of the United States. Can anything good come from there? <laughs> I used to joke that Houston and New Orleans were the armpits. Right? I'm not going to tell you what the Mississippi River was. <laughs> but you know what? God has taken people from those places just like every other, and He scattered them around the world. A man named Billy Hornsby that comes from a town you've never heard of. He's now with Jesus. He was just a cop. Just a cop. But he decided to do something for Jesus. In his lifetime, he helped to plant, or helped other people to plant, 350 churches. Isn't that something? Isn't that worth something? I'm not going to read to you Numbers 29. There's a message out there called A Whole Lot of Bull. If you want to know about Numbers 29, read A Whole Lot of Bull. Listen to the message. There's one feast that more than any other symbolizes the salvation of the nations. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. And on the Feast of Tabernacles, the very first day, you sacrifice 13 bulls. Then 12 bulls. Then 11 bulls. Then 10 bulls. All the way down for seven days. And you know how many bulls you end up sacrificing? You guessed it. Seventy. Because the plan of God would be complete when the nations of God had been brought in. Elium is a pattern. Twelve become a spring for seventy. All the nations of the world. In Matthew 10, 5, how many people did Jesus send out? Nope. In Matthew 10, 5, Jesus sent out twelve. And when he sent out the twelve, he told them something. Do not go to any of the towns of the Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? Of course, in Luke 10, he sent out a different number. Depends on your translation. If you have a King James translation, it says 70. If you have several translations, it says 70. NIV chose 72. That's a translation issue I'll talk to you about some other time. When he sent out the 70, you know what he didn't tell them? He didn't tell them, don't go to the Gentiles. When he sent out 12, he said, stay right here. Build the family. When he sent out the 70, he left it open to them to go to the world. In Genesis, I'm sorry, in Matthew 28, we have the Great Commission. And in the Great Commission, he tells all of his believers to go into every nation, not just teaching them to believe, not just teaching them to be baptized, 
not just proclaiming what Christians have called the Trinity. He said, but teaching them to obey. Because the obedience of the nations, it belongs to him. It started with one obedient man, one life at a time. It moved to one obedient family. And then it centered on one obedient nation. And now it is touching the world, and you're proof of that. Where do we start? We start with one life, one family, and one nation. There are some things I'd like to show you. Joy, do you have those pictures? We're closing. <coughs> oh, wow, look at Joy. Or is that you, John? That's true. Dead silence. That's good. Nobody takes credit for things in the kids. Okay, so uh, it, it's all right. We don't have to have that. I would like you to do a couple things. One is, for this Wednesday, read Psalm 67. Okay? A young man who's hoping to start a church soon, Gabriel Mays. All of you know Gabriel. Most of you do. He wrote a great worship song, and it was Psalm 67. As we were praying about this meeting, as we were looking at this, go to the other picture first. Our logo, this is as best we could approximate it. None of us are artists. Mario, you might help us with this. Our logo is a man with his hands raised, right? One life changed. Y'all seen that? It's on our website, it's on our sign, it's, it's everywhere. This represents one life at a time. One family at a time. One nation at a time. Builds the one true kingdom. God. Are you with me? Go back to that other slide, Joy. One life, one family, one nation. This is not about branding. It's not about marketing. It's so that you can visualize a concept. What you do does matter. If you don't believe that, then how did that guy get 67 million people to know that a man named Joseph Comey needs to be stopped? How did he do that? He did it because he began to care about one life. He cared about a kid named Jacob. Go to watch the video. It can be done. This is essentially what God told me when he sent me to Sugarland. He said, Lord, why there? Look at all those churches. Look at all those people. But apparently he cared about you. You think he cared about Larissa? He brought her from the west coast of Africa to here. Think he cares about Justice and Clementina and Andrew and Brenda? Whether from England or Ghana, wherever he had to bring them, he brought them. Because he cares. Is a life worth less because they were born somewhere else? It's not when you get to know them. It's not. It's not. If it was my son that was starving, you would not be my friend if you didn't do something. Read Psalm 67. Secondly, we have something else for you to do. Who has the bulletins? Because we print these every week. I need one, by the way. Yes, can I have yours? We print these every week for you. In your bulletin. It says the nations that I'm praying for. 216 nations were scrolling on that screen. There are two that everybody ought to pray for without a thought. You know what two nations you ought to pray for without any thought? I mean, it's just biblically commanded of you. Israel. Israel and the nation that you live in, right? Israel and the nation you live in are on that list no matter what. What you see in 1 through 5 are some suggestions. Pray for supernatural or extraordinary manifestations. 
Pray for open doors for missionaries. He might even be trying to send you. Pray for godly, mature spiritual leaders. Pray for the multiplication of disciples. Pray for kings and governments. We're going to do something. On the back wall, we're going to put a map that is about six feet by four feet. Anybody who wants to pray for a nation for a year, or more than one nation for a year, we're going to begin every service with three minutes about the nation you're praying for, or one of the nations you're praying for. This means in two years, the church will have heard about every nation. And more than heard about every nation, the church will be invested in praying for them. John, go ahead and stop that. I'll tell you one other thing. 